This is DevHops, the application modernization podcast that covers everything from software development, testing, operations, security, and everything in between. I'm your host, Noel Wurst, and joining me, as he often does, is Jason English. We were absolutely thrilled this week to be joined by Sonatype VP and DevOps advocate, Derek Weeks. This week, we chatted about the DevOps toolchain, the incredible amount of open source software available to put in it, and how organizations govern their toolchains with the popularity of borrowing, borrowing what works and the shared responsibility to make sure that we're releasing the highest quality software possible. We covered a ton of ideas in this week's show, so we're going to dive right in. But stick around until the end, because we'll give you all the places you can learn more about Derek, Sonatype, and Skytap before we sign off. Here we go, everybody. So our, our theme today is what's in your tool chain. And if you start off a DevOps strategy by discussing only the technologies involved, you end up really missing the point. There's, there's no standard vendor solution available today that you know, can fit all of your needs just by itself. But we are starting to see tool chains uh, that contain many of the elements needed for a successful transformation. And those tools encompass organizational process and technology implements kind of working hand in hand. Uh, so before we dive into tool chains specifically, I was going to ask you how, how you've seen that DevOps has, has changed software delivery as we know it today. Yeah, um, so that's a great question. Uh, it's, it's obviously changed uh, soft, software as we know it today in a, in a lot of ways. I, I think one is, as I work in this space, I'm very excited about the um, amazing amount of innovation that's going on. This is probably one of the greatest innovation waves that we've ever uh, ever been in, and I feel like we are just you know even at the start of this wave. Um, there is tremendous energy behind uh, DevOps coming into play, and for those that have headed down the path and have certainly seen their early successes in it. Um, I think there's no going back, right? There, um, the ways of old and doing things uh, as we used to is no longer acceptable. And you know, there are organizations that are learning to swim with the tide, um, and those that aren't are going to get crushed. Um, and, and I think the um, the way that it's changed is really there are organizations that have figured out how to become very high-performance organizations where they're moving from software development and operations as being less of an art and more of production, like as in manufacturing, where they look at, you know, we have certain components that we are producing, and those components can be systems, applications, containers, uh, microservices, what what have you, and they're saying, how do I um, organize these components, manage and store these components, distribute the components, assemble the components into finished products or, or goods uh, to make my business, uh, you know, more perf- uh, higher performance? Uh, and they're taking a lot of lessons learned from. You know, uh, even those way as way back uh, or as far back as Deming, 
um, these uh, manufacturing, lean and agile manufacturing processes that have made it into every other modern manufacturing industry, from automobiles to food services to pharmaceuticals, um, where they know absolutely everything that's going into their products. They are using the highest quality components uh, for those, and they can track and trace and monitor the health of those components and their ecosystem, their manufacturing lines, um, you know, to, to such a degree that um, high precision is part of you know, how they normally work. And I think that there are software organizations um, that are fully embracing these principles and really coming out as much more high-performance organizations, um, you know, performing at a lower cost, being much more innovative, removing considerable waste from their, um, from their infrastructure and from their operations. And I think that is um, you know, a huge amount of how it's changed is these uh, software delivery taking on that um, more of the production style or manufacturing view and, and less of the art um, kind of uh, view that, you know, everything's unique and, you know, as unique as a snowflake. And um, they're saying, you know, we can really control these environments if we treat it more in a systematic way. That's great, Derek. I mean, yeah, I, think, outstanding. I think that we've uh, basically – Software development has kind of given itself a pass on that kind of discipline over the last two decades, and it's really coming around now. Um, what's, what's very interesting about what's changed about software delivery itself is that also it's become so collaborative and that you really are – the art is really in, in getting these teams to work together and you know have that shared empathy and have the ability to um, – you know, put themselves in each other's shoes so that you have development and operations and security and everybody uh, kind of coming to the table to have that common goal. Uh, so that's really a lot of how it's changed things. But everything you're talking about, bringing uh, the discipline of manufacturing forward into um, the DevOps today is just exactly what what I would say. Yeah, I, th I think there are a lot of organizations, you know, when they hear this, like, hey, you know, you're, it, if you kind of take it down to, you know, the, the manufacturing analogy that you're, that you're looking at and dealing with parts from suppliers that you're bringing into your, you know, DevOps tool chain or software supply chain, what have you, and, and those parts can be, you know, the systems that you configure, the applications that get configured, the software components that go into your applications, the security and governance policies that can be created uh, as code. A lot of people find, well, that sounds kind of restrictive that, you you know, you're standardizing everything, but once you realize the freedom that it gives you and the time that it frees up for you to do those kind of things um, and the velocity at which you can move when you use these kind of technologies um, you know, to your advantage and you manage them to your advantage, that's really where it becomes exciting. I don't see it as constraining 
um, whatsoever. I, I see it as you can move faster and be more innovative than anyone else, and you can come out a winner, which I think all of us want to do. You know, we want to develop software that people want and uh, you know that really meets customers' needs, and we can deliver it at a, at a speed that they expect. Let's talk about uh, the uh, borrowing what works. I was curious, Eric, as to to what extent um, have you seen that become prevalent uh, in the software market today? Oh my gosh, uh, it's everywhere. Um, one is, I think Jason just mentioned the the collaboration between people, um, not only internally but across organizations, trying to figure out, hey, you know. What's working in your organization, and can I use some of that over here? Um, we see it in organizations uh, that have built something, like built a, a software tool, um, you know, whether that's an automation tool or a dashboard or something like that, um, and, and making it available as open source so that others can borrow uh, what works uh, in that regard to better innovate and automate. Um, the, their operations. I think you know one of the things that we certainly see uh, at Sonotype in mass um, is the, if you will, borrowing of open source components to be used in application development. Um, some of the listeners might not know Sonotype, um, and part of what we do is host the Maven Central repository, which is the largest open source repository in the world for Java components. Um, last year, we served 31 billion download requests for open source components. Wow. Um, and there are only 11 million developers in the world that would need these billions of, uh, of components. But basically, I, you know, there are organizations and open source projects out there that are developing pieces of code that other developers no longer have to write themselves. Um, and this is creating, you know, uh, uh, a, a massive change in the way software is being developed, where now it's being more assembled um, than written from scratch, and that's allowing us to move much faster. We're seeing that in, you know, the organizations that are, are delivering new products faster. We're also seeing it in the products that didn't normally have software in them now have software in them because it's easier to create some uh, some of the products that are coming to market because of these reusable components and so forth. Um, the other thing that, that I see, which um, is really interesting for me, um, and Jason, I might have shared this with you in, in our initial conversations, but I put together a DevOps reference architecture deck, um, DevOps and continuous delivery reference architectures. And I put it out on SlideShare um, earlier last year. Um, that slide deck has 67,000 views on it in the last 10 months or so. Um, and a lot of what's in there, they're just reference architectures from a lot of different companies using a lot of different tools and a lot of you know, different ways. There are some commonalities between them, but I think people really went to that deck and, and are using it as a reference point for, hey, I'm going to get started. What have other people done? What can I borrow from, from them that works? Um, or they say, you know, we've already been down the path where you know we're down the path and doing what we're doing i want to validate that what we're doing actually looks like what other people are doing 
Um, and, and I think that kind of collaborative, free sharing nature of, um, you know, of DevOps and the practices that are going on is just part of what's fueling this innovation wave and the energy behind it. Yeah, it really has been a transformation of uh, the industry as a whole and the way that we're seeing teams really, uh, some of these DevOps meetups, the forums on DevOps, the way that people are actually interested in meeting with peers or doing things in other companies, it's it's created a different environment for this sort of thing where we used to think of innovation as, as a proprietary thing that happens inside your company. It's really it's almost unstoppable when you think about an industry as a whole kind of embracing open source and embracing the sharing of information to, to this extent. Oh yeah. When, you know, when I started off my career and I, I spent a number of years at HP as a big organization, I can't imagine sitting down with a bunch of other software development organizations and sharing stuff about, you know, kind of the inside secrets and traits about what we're doing and how we're approaching it. Um, it was like, why would, why would you ever do that? And now there are whole conferences and <laughs> DevOps days and meetups built upon that, that premise of like, you, you want to share and no one's going to steal your secret sauce just from you, you know, telling people how to work better. Um, you know, so it, it's really, uh, I think a refreshing change. And for those that are participating, they're benefiting tremendously from that kind of non-proprietary view of the of the, the world and it's certainly from a process standpoint and cultural understanding standpoint that people need to share those lessons learned. So as we're, as we're talking about borrowing you know, what works and all of the collaboration that's you know, around DevOps, how, how do you suggest that, um, that organizations look at controlling and deciding you know, what makes it into their DevOps tool chain, and and how do you maintain governance over that with with so many places to to borrow and to to, to take you know open source and that kind of thing? That how do you how do you decide you know who gets to put things in here, what that process is, and then and then, like I said, maintaining that governance. Yeah, the, um, that's also a great question. This is something that I um, I spend a lot of time on, and, and I'm gonna. Uh, maybe have an answer too too specific to Sonotype and the the work that I'm doing, but I, I think it's totally relevant when um, when we think about kind of what makes it into the DevOps tool chain. A lot of what I've gone out and spoken about in the the last six months or so is um, uh, the open source components that organizations are using to. Um, develop their software and their applications. On one side, those components are dramatically improving, uh, expediting development, uh, improving the innovation that we're doing, accelerating our, our time to market. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know we've seen 31 billion download requests of components coming from 11 million developers. Um, in some cases, it's a free for all. Um, which leads to very little control over what's coming into an organization mm -hmm. um, where you have any developer um, able to pull any open source component and put that into an application. They're pulling these components from um, you know, unknown suppliers of unknown origin, sometimes of unknown quality or security or integrity, 
Um, and those components are freely making it into the software supply chain and, and you know, being orchestrated or, or assembled through uh, the DevOps tool chains. When you know, we looked at the volume of all these downloads, what I, I saw in one of the um, parts of my analysis was one in 16 components uh, that were downloaded had a known security vulnerability associated with them. Mm. Um, for an average development organization, you know, one in 16 may or may not sound like a lot, but uh, average development organizations downloading nearly a quarter million components a year and that works out to about 15,000 or so vulnerable components on average being consumed. Um, we can't imagine any other modern industry on earth operating this way. Right. Um, you can't imagine manufacturing a car where one in 16 parts is known defective. You can't imagine you know, creating bread or you know potato chips or anything else where one in 16 ingredients that you're putting in has a known issue or, or pharmaceuticals or whatever um, that that other industries have figured out how to really manage what's going in there um, their processes um, what parts they're using and if anything goes wrong with those parts they can track and trace them um, throughout the process um, I think we saw with a lot of the security vulnerabilities that came out in 2014, 2015, there was a lot of there were a lot of organizations asking, "Hey, did we use that OpenSSL Heartbleed thing?" And if yeah, uh, yes, where did we use that? Um, and there was a lot of well, it's going to take us like two weeks, four weeks, six weeks to find maybe where we put those. Um, and in some cases, you know, they put them in places that couldn't be patched. Um, and needed to be completely replaced. Um, and, and, you know, so I think those kind of, the control factor is something that needs to come more into play. I think, you know, we probably have a better chance to manage it now than ever before. Um, but I think we're still at the early stages of really understanding what the benefit is of controlling what gets into the tool chains and, and how, it, um, how it becomes governed. Yeah, that's great, Derek. I mean, we're saying there's a whole constellation of what we would call tools that could make it into a tool chain. And and a lot of times there's too much emphasis on saying a specific set of tools is what you need. But a company does need to standardize on, on something in order to have a, a working, repeatable process. So, um, you know, as far as automating the, you know, here is the reference infrastructure that we're going to be using. Here's the framework for you know continu for continuous integration and here's our framework for delivering uh, you know automated builds to each you know successive test environment. And then mm -hmm. if I can do that as a pattern and make it repeatable then then you know we do need to you know a company itself does have to come to agreement on what what is in that tool chain. It's it's not a uh, there's not a prescriptive set that I would say you have to do, but you do have to say I'm, I'm trying to automate at every stage of the process and and put a chain in place, and then we can improve upon it. But each time we, uh, you know, set up a new developer, a new team to contribute, you know, we want them to be using as much of that reference uh, tool chain as we can. Yeah, I, you know, in the the reference architecture deck that I mentioned um, previously, and for any listeners that want to find it, if you go to SlideShare, 
uh, slideshare.com and you just search DevOps on that site, it's the first deck that comes up, uh, I, I think, because it's been so popular. Um, but the, one of the things that I noted in that deck was there are certainly a number of standard components and tool chains that people utilize. Um, you know, when you look at those and you see um, Maven, you see Jenkins, you see Docker, you see Rundeck, Puppet or Chef, you see SonarCube, you see Nexus uh, from Sonotype, uh, you see Tomcat, you see GitHub, GitLab. Um, those are very common components across almost all of those pictures that people have begun to standardize kind of what's uh, what's in there. Um, but I think there's also, you know, on the flip side, there are a lot of organizations, uh, and you probably have run into this too, that think, hey, I'm you know, I want to do continuous integration, so I'm going to bring in Jenkins. And just because you have Jenkins in place doesn't mean you're doing continuous integration. And I know, you know, Jez Humble preaches about this uh, a lot of, you know, he has kind of his checklist of here, here's what you're doing if you're really doing continuous integration. And most people aren't doing that. They're, you know, inspirationally, they want to get there. Um, but just because they implement them first doesn't mean, um, you know, doesn't mean that there's a lot that they can, uh, or, or just because they have the tool doesn't mean that they're doing the continuous integration. Yeah, Derek, I was going to say when, when you were talking about, um, the uh, responsibility there of um, not introducing these vulnerabilities as we're as we're doing all of this borrowing and collaborating. I got to see Joshua Corman uh, this summer at the DevOps Enterprise Summit in San Francisco, and he got up and talked about the not just the opportunity that developers have today to create you know really cool and really powerful stuff, but he really got into the responsibility uh, that developers and operations have now that we are introducing code into, you know, automated vehicles and, you know, robots performing surgery and all of these, you know, very heavy kind of uh, interactive, um, interactive pieces of software that we have today, all of that, like the Internet of Things, um, that kind of thing, and talked about the responsibility that we have to keep all of that stuff both secure and reliable and got into the whole rugged DevOps thing. And I mean, there was just a hush over the crowd. It was such a powerful... Uh, powerful speech by him regarding this responsibility that everyone has and, and has to take very seriously. Yeah, you know, with the amount of software that is going into anything today mm -hmm. and the the velocity at which we're able to produce stuff, there, there is, you know, certainly a responsibility for how we produce things. And I think we, you know, we see that emanate in a lot of different Ways, I, I you know, for those of us that are a little closer to what goes on, um, you know, in security aspects uh, of things, we um, we see these stories all the time about you know back in August, you saw the hackers that you know got into the Jeep Grand Cherokee that mm, they stopped yeah. on the highway and you know Wired r reported on this and. You know, luckily Chrysler fixed, uh, you know, fixed those vehicles or put out a, a recall on those vehicles um, right away. We hear about different um, hackers being able to get into things like pacemakers mm -hmm. or you know hospital or medical systems that are consuming these. Um, you know, and, and you know, just to think about um, the way that we are developing things. Um, 
you know, you can imagine like that, you know, they did that proof of concept back on the, the Grand Cherokee and they said, look, we're able to con- take control of this particular vehicle. I am sure that those hackers, even though they were white hat hackers, figured out, you know, there are, I don't know, a half a million, a million, who, who knows, Jeep Grand Cherokees on the road that had that software in them. Mm-hmm. Imagine if they decided, hey, let's disable every one of these right now. The, the amount of impact that it has is dramatic. Mm-hmm. And um, where that software is being used repeatedly among you know, different products that we rely on for our own health and security, um, it is extremely important that all of us takes a responsibility to understand what are we putting into these products that we're offering to people, just as other industries have said, we're not going to put unsafe parts into cars or drugs or food services or what have you. And it's not just about hey, we're not going to put bad parts in, but also understanding, hey, in the future, parts can go bad, right? Mm-hmm. And parts can become known defective. And whether that's, you know, cilantro that goes in your burrito that has, you know, some uh, something wrong with it that needs to be recalled or a drug that has some ingredient that, you know, is known to cause some kind of defects or, you know, a car that can be stopped on the freeway, those um, supply chains and those processes for their organi- the, the organizations, they have taken the responsibility to say, not only do I own what's going into this, but I own the responsibility for fixing it if it goes wrong. And they track and trace everything that goes into their products. And I think in software, we have to take a similar approach to say, we have to be responsible not only for what goes into these products, but be responsible for, um, and not only responsible, but capable of repairing those things if they go wrong. Um, There's a popular quote at Sonotype that software ages more like milk than wine. Hmm. Um, And if you take that that impression um, and say, yes, we have to be responsible for not only what goes in, but um, making sure that it stays good over time, uh, I think that's critical to certainly national security. It's critical to our health. It's critical to uh, our, our safety, and it's critical to the success of the higher performing organizations in any industry. This was absolutely one of my all-time favorite episodes of DevOps. I joke sometimes about the overabundance of people describing themselves as passionate about what they do. But hopefully you were able to tell from this episode that Derek Weeks, Joshua Corman, and I can only assume the rest of the folks at Sonotype are absolutely passionate about helping others see the responsibility at hand when it comes to software quality. You can read a ton of Derek's great work at blog.sonotype.com, and you can read some of our great work and catch up on more episodes of DevHops at skytap.com blog. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll see you on the next episode.